0: Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Okay. All right, well... uh, Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate that. All right. Back in Jeremiah, weeping for a nation. Uh, as we begin this morning, I want to remind you of a little statement. You've, I know you've heard they say, do not poke the bear. Do not poke the bear. But uh, that is unless you're Jeremiah. <laughs> God's been telling Jeremiah to poke the bear for a couple decades. Uh, just keep poking them, keep poking them, keep poking them. Now we're going to see the bear wake up. And um, it's, a, it's a tragedy, really, when persecution comes to a believer. But that's what we're going to see with Jeremiah. We're going to see Jeremiah thrown into jail for preaching the word of God. That's going to happen in chapter 20. But first, let me give the setting, okay, that leads up to his imprisonment. In chapter 18, you can go there if you'd like. I'm going to share just a couple of verses there. In chapter 18, God sends Jeremiah. We have this unique little object lesson. He sends Jeremiah to the potter's house to watch the master potter at work. Jeremiah 18 and verse 2 Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. By the way, back in 2016, my wife and I got the privilege of spending the better part of a day in uh, Turkey uh, near ancient Ephesus where Paul uh, did ministry. And while we were there for just a few hours, our tour guide took us to watch a master potter at work. He said, do you guys want to go see a a potter? And so we took this picture here and uh, we just watched him as he worked on this potter's wheel uh, manually with his feet, that would, uh, the stone wheel. and he would t- same, same method, really, they would use 3,000 years ago in Jeremiah's day. So I can almost picture Jeremiah going to watch the potter at work. God says, go watch the potter, and I'm going to speak to you there. But it says in chapter 18 that the potter started working, and it was a marred piece of clay. So he discarded that one and used another piece of clay. Do I have these verses here? And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel that seemed good to make it. The potter, uh, he saw Jeremiah watched him and he he, uh, he was working that clay, but this clay had a problem. It was marred. There was something in it or some problem with it. And so the potter just takes it off the wheel and throws it away and starts new. And the point is that we see in chapter 18, really, that God was trying to give to Jeremiah and thereby then give to the people, is that the potter, that is God, can do what he likes with the clay. He does what he wants. He's sovereign. He's in control. But if the clay has a defect, if there's something wrong with the clay, the potter may choose and will choose to throw it away and start over. And that was a very helpful picture of God's sovereignty and man's free will. There's both in there. God was saying to Jeremiah, tell the people basically, yes, I've made a covenant with you folks in Israel. I've chosen you. I am sovereign. I chose you. But if you choose not to keep your end of the bargain and you are a marred piece of clay, then I will discard you And start over. Basically, don't think that just because you're Israel that I have to uh, do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want, and I'm never uh, going to have to punish you. I'm never going to have to judge you. So Jeremiah gives that message, and after that and some more preaching in chapter 18, God has him then leave the potter's house and take a vessel with him, a bottle from the potter's house that had already been finished, And now travel to the valley of Hinnom or Tophet, which is a place right outside Jerusalem, right outside the gate. Now this is where people sacrificed their children to Baal. This is where they burned their children. Speaking of uh, abortion, it reminds me so much of that. But they would lay their babies in the hands there, screaming and crying, and those babies would die. They were doing this to offer their children as burnt offerings so that their God might bless them. This is God's own people doing this just like the heathen nations. In fact, King Manasseh of Judah himself burnt his son alive there in Tophet, this valley of Hinnom. Later this little place, this valley of Hinnom was the what became the perpetual uh, garbage dump for Jerusalem. Everybody tossed all their garbage out there and they would burn it. And so there was kind of a perpetual smoke, And fire in the air uh, uh, from all the the garbage. By Jesus' time, when he came along to Jerusalem, uh, the Greek translation for this valley of Hinnom was Gehenna, which became the symbol. So this place then became a symbol of hell, the literal place of burning. So God sends Jeremiah to this place, this place of burning. And this is what he tells him to do. This is the message that God tells Jeremiah to preach at that place. Verse 10 of chapter 19 now. Then shalt thou break the bottle in the sight of the men that go with thee. Verse 11. And shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Even so will I break this people and this city as one breaketh a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet till there be no place to bury. So the secondary lesson of the potter was, and Jeremiah was preaching it forcefully, as long as you folks are soft like clay, God could mold you. But once you become hardened, then the only thing that God can do now is break you. And he goes to this very specific place to show them this is the reason God is doing this. Right here where you sacrificed your children... God's going to punish you and judge you. And this breaking is a symbol of that. Now, after this sermon, God sends him immediately to the temple, into Jerusalem. So he's right outside Jerusalem. He does this very vivid image of the breaking. And he says, now, go to the temple. And if you thought preaching out at the gates of hell was bad, uh, try, just try, to tell self-righteous people in God's house, that they are not obedient to the Lord. (laughs) Chapter 19, verses 14 and 15, this leads up into chapter 20 here. Then came Jeremiah from Tophet, whither the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court now of the Lord's house, and said to all the people, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon this city And upon all her towns, all the evil that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks, that they might not hear my words. The hardened clay was just like their hardened necks. You know, the Old Testament often speaks of Israel having stiff necks, meaning they were stubborn, they were rebellious. Uh, I heard one person talk about it this way, they had necks that, wouldn't look up to hear the word of the Lord. They had necks that wouldn't look around to see what their sin was causing, the problems their sin was causing. They had necks that wouldn't look down in repentance. They were hardened, rebellious, stiff necks that only wanted to do their own thing. And they would not listen to reason and they would not listen to righteousness anytime a prophet would come. So Jeremiah preaches this message forcefully right in the house of the Lord. They have, there's God's house there, a beautiful temple, a place to worship the Lord, but right in there, they would have idols uh, of false gods in that place. Well, this message did not sit well with the people in the temple. Reminds us of Jesus coming to the temple. Several hundred years later, Jesus would come through the temple and see all these people selling their wares and They had made God's house a den of thieves, and Jesus drove them out uh, with whips. Jeremiah is a foreshadowing of that. But to get the full force of what's about to happen here to Jeremiah, we probably need a little bit of political climate. I think it would help. Now, this is probably about 20 years into uh, Jeremiah's ministry. His total amount of time preaching is about 40 or 50 years. And by the end of that time, Jeremiah, Babylon will have already come and taken Judah captive. So this is about 20 years in, maybe, about halfway, and Babylon has already become now the world power. They've started systematically going to these nations and destroying them and capturing people out of those nations. The people of Judah begin to sense that war is coming. Babylon is strong. They're gaining in strength. And we're weakening and this is not going to go well. So, the king of Judah was considering maybe an alliance with Egypt so that they could together defeat Babylon when they tried to, to come. So, you, can, you have to kind of feel the national fear inside Judah right now. They're fearful of, of, of Babylon coming in and, and taking them. And in the middle of that kind of national fear, Jeremiah steps up and tells them, you are going to be destroyed. This place is going to be destroyed. And just as I've been talking about all this time, a nation is going to come from the north and destroy this place. So this didn't sit well with everybody, especially the leadership. You know, Jeremiah has been a bad news prophet for 20 years. There's been sick of this guy. And now he's discouraging the people in the middle while they're already afraid. And I think probably the leadership now began to see Jeremiah as committing treason. You were betraying now your country and you're contributing to a low morale among our nation. And this is not okay. So I think the authorities now feel that they have a moral reason to take him down. It would actually be, in their minds, immoral if they let let him keep preaching. It would harm our nation. So they would be doing everyone a favor if they just take this guy down. So here's what happens. Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 1. Now, Pashur, the son of Immer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur smote Jeremiah the prophet, and put him in stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. So apparently, Pashur, the son of a priest, was head of security at the temple. And he hears the preaching of Jeremiah. So it says he smote him. So he goes and strikes him. Now, that could be just him walking up, and it's hard to know exactly what happened here, and uh, this happened to Jesus um, and Paul, I mean, they would just get hit right in the face. But maybe more likely this word smote could mean uh, the typical 39 lashes that, sh- that they would give to somebody. So it's possible. they took Jeremiah, gave him 39 lashes, and then they put him in stocks. Now this is not like early American stocks, you know, with a little hole in the head out and out like that. The word stocks here, uh, doesn't mean Apple and Google stocks. That, this means, the word means to turn, to twist, to rack. So this is most likely a, an instrument of torture. It had an opening for the head, opening for your two hands and your two feet. And then they would keep it in a twisted or a crooked posture. So they'd keep you in a, in a very uncomfortable position for hours on end. In fact, for Jeremiah, we're going to find out it was all night long. So whatever time of day he was put in that, and then all night long he was left in in these stocks. I want to just say, ultimately, these people, they don't hate Jeremiah. Eh, Maybe a little bit. But they hate mostly Jeremiah's message. If he would just shut up, they would not not be doing this. Amazing the power of words. Amazing the power of words. So Pashur, he's going to let him out of the stocks after one night, hoping that this guy will shut up and he's learned his lesson. Verse 3. And it came to pass on the morrow that Pashur brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. Now, let me pause for just a minute. If this was you, you've been racked in pain all night. You've been beaten. Wouldn't you just go home after this? You say, you know, I'll go home and I'll live to fight another day. Uh, it's been a long, excruciating night, and I'd rather just uh, lick my wounds and come back later. Not Jeremiah. Then said Jeremiah unto him, The Lord hath not called thy name Pashur, but Magor Misabib. <laughs> so as he's walking out, he's barely standing in, in incredible pain. I'm sure dried blood all over him. He looks at Pashur and calls him Magor Masabib. I like the sound of that. Maybe you could try that the next time somebody ridicules you at work for being a Christian or something. <laughs> Magor Masabib. Okay. It's kind like, of like a Christian curse word a little bit, you know. <laughs> I, I actually did have an idea. You could try it on social media sometime and just see what kind of reaction you get. <laughs> but the word means terror all around. Terror all around. Interestingly, the word Pashur, the name Pashur means peace and security all around. So God is actually making a play on words here. He had given this to Jeremiah during the middle of the night, and Jeremiah tells it to Pashur on his way out. Jeremiah continues, verse 4, For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword." Of their enemies and thine eyes shall behold it, and I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with the sword. Now up to this point, in his ministry, Jeremiah has never mentioned Babylon specifically. It's always been a nation from the north, a nation from the north. But now, starting now, and the rest of Jeremiah, we'll see it about 200 more times. Babylon will be mentioned. And I could just see Pashur with his head in his hands <laughs> as Jeremiah's walking out saying this to him. Pashur just wondering, what do I do to shut this guy up? What is it going to take? Verse five, Jeremiah continues talking. Moreover, I will deliver all the strength of this city and all the labors thereof and all the precious things thereof and all the treasures of the kings of Judah will I give into the hand of their enemies, which shall spoil them and take them and carry them to Babylon. And thou, Pashur, and all that dwell in thine house shall go into captivity. And thou shalt come to Babylon, and there thou shalt die, and shalt be buried there, thou and all thy friends to whom thou hast prophesied lies." This is really the same message that Jeremiah has been delivering for some 20 years. He's just making it personal to Paschur. And just as we, I was thinking about that, just the same thing we do year after year after year after year. We just keep giving the same life changing message the gospel. The fact that people are going to die and go to hell without Jesus. It's the truth. And we just keep saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again and it drives people crazy sometimes. But we keep saying it our whole lives because it's the truth. It's the truth. It. And now after this ordeal, it seems that Jeremiah, he has to just go home. And he now needs to pour out his heart to the Lord because he's got something he's dealing with with God. So these next few verses, maybe they came to him in the middle of the night. Maybe these are the thoughts and the things he was wrestling with then while he was in stocks and not sleeping. Or maybe he went home and all these came to him. We're not exactly sure when. But they take us deep into the heart of a weeping prophet. And now, you know, his physical danger is now, uh, his physical body is in danger now from this day forward. He knows that. And he knows that his home and his nation are about to be taken over. So let me ask you a question. If this were the case for you, uh, how would you talk to the Lord at that point? Every day that you walk outside your door, you knew you could be arrested and put in stocks again. And any day you know that your nation is about to suffer the judgment of God. How do you talk to the Lord when things are at the most desperate for you? Some have said that this is Jeremiah's dark night of the soul. But I want to say as we read through this, he never loses his faith in the Almighty God. You know, when the Apostle Paul was in a dark place, he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. This verse is powerful and it so resonates in our heart. We we get troubled, but we are not in distress. We are perplexed by why God would allow these things. But we're not in despair. And that's the perfect way to describe this holy wrestling match that's always going on in our minds, this tension when we see this evil around us. We know that God is loving and he's in control, but we're also struggling with the circumstances that he allows. So that's what we're going to see, this tug of war inside Jeremiah's heart. What we're about to read are the honest words of a man in crisis. Remember that. Verse 7. Oh, Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. Interesting to me that... <clears throat> Of all the painful things he brings up, he he brings up mocking. Physical wounds heal, but the constant mocking every day and no one loving you and no one coming to your side and people rejecting you, that takes an emotional toll on people. Verse 8, for since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil. Meaning ever since I was was young and I could speak, everything I've cried out has been violence and spoil. Because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Jeremiah says, I've always only preached the word of the Lord. That's the only thing I've preached. But it's always bad news, violence, and spoil. I'm not a mean guy, (laughs) I'm I'm just saying exactly what God told me to say. I never asked for this job. God put me in the preaching ministry since I was a child, and I I really would just like to just be buddies with people. So really now, Jeremiah, he's just just crying out from his heart, I don't like my job. So he turns in his resignation, verse 9. Then I said... I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. I give up. I'm no longer going to do this. This kind of ministry is too much for me. I can't handle it. And then these words, that are some of the most powerful words in the entire Bible. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay, or I could not win. <laughs> I told you this was an honest man. He resigns, and then he's back in the ministry within five seconds. <laughs> now, now, not that any of us are at Jeremiah's level, but this amazing verse has been an encouragement to many, many, many pastors and missionaries and soul winners for thousands of years. Even right now, this pandemic thing has been taking its toll on church leaders. I just want to mention this. I read uh, recently that at this very moment, according to some studies, there are one-third of pastors are considering leaving the ministry. Pray for pastors. Pray for missionaries all over the world that are dealing with so many different things as a result of all this. But honestly, I don't know of one person. That's a third, but... I don't know of one person in ministry who, if they were honest with you, hasn't at times wanted to quit and become a hermit in Alaska. Paul, the Apostle Paul calls the ministry the work of the ministry. There's that four-letter dirty word, work. Work. It's work sometimes. And anyone who speaks the plain word of God will feel the arrows fly. And they will hurt. Anybody who goes out, to an abortion clinic and, and uh, anybody who tries to win a soul or tell some, anybody who tries to live as a believer at their job, anybody who tries to make a difference in their neighborhood or in their family is going to feel the arrows fly. Really, anyone who loves the Lord is going to feel some of this at some time or another. But the second part of the verse is also very much how we feel as ministers for the Lord the person with the call of God on their life has a burning fire in their bones. A burning fire in their bones. Here's here's what was going on. Jeremiah can't not preach the word, is what he's saying. I can't not there's a burning fire in my bones. It's like somebody was very crude when they described it like, you know, that feeling that you just need to burp. <laughs> it's that it's that uh, indigestion that you're feeling. It has to come. That's what he said. It's like a burning fire in my bones, the word of God, and I have to speak it. I think that's one of the clearest signs to me personally that someone has truly been called into the ministry. Again, I'm nowhere near Jeremiah, and I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. But many have asked me personally, how do you know that you were called into the ministry? How do you know you were called? And every time, pretty much, I say something along these lines. I just can't not do this. There's a fire in my bones, basically. Basically, I I would burn to death if I did something else. I can't do something else. My, I, just, I just cannot. And I resonated with something as I was studying this this week. Warren Wearsby, he said about Jeremiah here. He said, it's not that Jeremiah had to say something. It's that Jeremiah had something to say. It's not that he had to say something. It's just that he had something to say. That's exactly how I feel. It's not like I want to preach against everyone's sin. It's not, I don't need fine. I'd rather sit down and let you everybody do what they want. Go for it. But the word of God burns in my heart. I'm glad. I just have something that needs to be said, and everyone who wants to obey the Lord and win souls they feel that way. But there's always an enemy waiting at the door, waiting to take us down. And Jeremiah describes that battle, verse 10. For I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report it. All my familiars watched for my halting, saying, "Peradventure, he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge on him. Basically, they watch me like a hawk to catch me doubting or, or doing something i shouldn't do it 's exhausting every time I open my mouth there 's people who want to cancel me and again it 's just like Jesus, the Pharisees and others were always asking him questions and trying to catch him in something that they could get him for but look at jeremiah 's faith and In verse 11. Verse 11. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, terrible one. Therefore, my persecutors shall stumble, and they shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed. For they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. They may have gotten me in the stocks, but they will not have the last word. I love this. This is a time of victory. He's speaking about deliverance. But, O Lord of hosts, that triest the righteous and seest the reins and the heart. Again, Jeremiah is being honest. God, you see my honest heart. Let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee I have opened my cause. Sing unto the Lord, praise ye the Lord, for he hath delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of evildoers. What an amazing song of triumph here. In, in a very, very dark place that Jeremiah was in. And this is what you and I need to do when we're in the darkest of days. We sing songs of victory even before the final deliverance. Did you know one day your deliverance is going to come? It's going to be on a day that starts like every other. And then pretty soon, Jesus is going to come. <laughs> and the deliverance is going to happen. And this is what God's people need to do. We sing songs of victory before that day even comes. So when you're feeling like you're in the dark night of the soul, start saying and start singing what is true about God. When you look at what Jeremiah writes, it's really a compilation of of psalms. Jeremiah knew the psalms well. So he preached and he sang the word of God to himself. Faith comes by hearing yourself preach the word of God. Now I would love to end here. This would be a perfect place to go go out of here and go go sing and start worshiping the Lord. But this is real life. This is not Hollywood. And Jeremiah was a real person. And some say this next these next few verses at the end of this chapter must come from a different time, and it's just randomly placed here. Certainly, sometimes you do see disjointed things in the Book of Jeremiah. He kind of just a lot of different prophecies come coming together. But the real conservative Bible commentators who will all agree that we should not try to separate this passage just because we're trying to tie a nice bow on the story here. Jeremiah is a real person. And he's just like you and he's just like me. And he is feeling some deep, deep, deep sadness here. And even when, just like Jeremiah, even when we know the truth, we wrestle with our feelings. Tomorrow morning, we're living, we, right now we believe the word and we, we can feel it. But tomorrow morning is where it counts. Tuesday is where it counts. And honestly, when we read this, it makes me love Jeremiah even more and relate to him even more as he opens up his heart here. Verse 14, cursed be the day. This comes out of nowhere. He's just singing songs of victory and then all of a sudden, cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bear me be Blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man-child is born unto thee, making him very glad. And let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not, and let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide, because he slew me not from the womb, or that my mother might have been in my grave, and her womb to be always great with me. Wherefore came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow, that my days should be consumed with shame. I curse the day and I curse the man who brought the news. That's what he says. Obviously the day and the man was, long, was way a long time ago. So his curses mean nothing practically. But this is just a very emotional way of describing how deep of a despondency he was in. He's not saying, and he's also not saying, listen, that he would commit suicide. But he is saying that he wishes he was never born. Or that somebody would have just Taken me out inside my mother's womb. I wouldn't have minded that. Because every day, my life is filled with labor. It's filled with sorrow. It's filled with shame. Man, you'd step back and you'd look at this and you your heart goes out to this man. But now at the end of this, I think, and I'm just going to leave it there. I'm going to leave the tension because it's a real tension that we all face. Our hearts are in turmoil sometimes and that's why Paul said, I am... I'm, 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 I'm struggling, but I'm not in distress. I'm perplexed, but I'm not in despair. But I think it's a good moment right here as we end to talk about Christian persecution real quick. I got a different perspective on Christian persecution after hearing the testimony of Andrew Brunson. Andrew Brunson was in Turkey. He was a pastor there for 20 years. He had been serving there. And on October 7th, 2016, he was arrested out of the blue. He was an American, had been there for 20 years. They accused him of starting a coup to try to uh, mess up the government. By the way, this sh- shook me up personally and uh, my wife because Elena and I, as I just told you at the beginning, we were in Turkey for one day. Well, guess what day that was? That was October 8th, 2016, the day after Andrew Brunson was arrested in the very same place that we were at. He, he, that's where his ministry was in Turkey. They were out looking for Christian pastors, and that's why I didn't tell anybody I was a pastor while I was there. But in his testimony, uh, President Trump worked a huge deal to get Andrew Brunson out of captivity, out of Turkey. And, and Andrew Brunson even went to the White House and prayed for President Trump in the Oval Office. But in, if you read his book, Andrew's book, it, he talks about how upset he was with himself. He always hoped, he said, if I ever faced persecution, that I would be strong and I would be joyful no matter what. He said, but as the days went on and I was in solitary confinement or the things they were doing to me and the things they were saying to me, he said, in the reality, in the middle of it, I would get, I would weep. I would get angry. I got sick of the situation. I would long for my comfort. I would long for home. I was depressed. I was doubtful. I screamed at God. I was fearful. I was unbelieving, and then he would feel guilty for not being stronger Christian. The reality was, he was a strong Christian through the whole thing, uh, but he, as he describes it, I just felt so ashamed of myself. Those are the prayers of an honest man. Those are the feelings of an honest man in the middle of persecution, and that is the reality of Christian persecution. It's truly horrible, and it puts the believer to a real test. Are you really going to stick this out? And do you really trust the Lord and his word? And I have to say here that our day is closer in America than it it has ever been. Interesting, we would talk about this topic today because just last week on January 8th, a new bill became law in Canada, our northern neighbors. It's an anti-homosexual conversion therapy bill. And I have some things for you here. The bill defines conversion therapy as this, a practice treatment or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, which they say now is a myth. The fact that you're a, you are the sex that you were assigned at birth, that's a myth, We, according to them in this bill. Repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. Repress or a person's non-cisgender gender identity. Or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. And what will happen to those who try to help someone out of their unwanted homosexual sin? If you try to help somebody, get out of that. Even if they come to you and tell you, I'd like to, I'd like to get out of this, as God says. Here's what's going to happen according to this law. This is his exact wording. Everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that other person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. The wording of this law is purposely very vague. You can be put in prison for simply promoting or advertising what they call conversion therapy. Therefore, it would not surprise us if a pastor in Canada is preaching from his pulpit, Romans chapter 1, and then he is put in prison for that. This is now a law in Canada signed by even the conservative lawmakers there. Started on January 8th. So several Canadian pastors across the country are publicly, have publicly promoted that today, Sunday the 16th, they're preaching about God's design for marriage and b- the biblical ethic of sexuality in defiance of this law. And some American pastors today are doing the exact same thing in solidarity with their brothers in Canada. Friends, I don't know how long we have until the Bible is viewed as hate speech and people will be listening to hear what we say and report us. Verse 10, For I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side, report, say they, and we will report it. All my familiars watched for my halting. That's Jeremiah, and that's so what I sense today that the day is coming in this country. But there are three takeaways that I see in this chapter for us real quick as we leave. Number one, as the days get darker, be vulnerable with God. There's no need to pretend like life doesn't sometimes hurt. Pour out your complaint to God, but not to man. Pour it out to God. That's what Jeremiah did. He did not pour out his complaint to man. He spoke the word of God, but he, when he was in private with the Lord, he, he, he poured out his whole heart. Even Jesus cried out in the garden of Gethsemane in pain. But then just listen as you pray. Lord, what would you have for me? Number two, be truthful with yourself. Do what Jeremiah did, preach the word to yourself. Sing the Psalms over and over again. Say what is true, even if you're struggling to feel that it's true. And don't believe the th- those things that aren't in the word of God. And lastly, be faithful with your calling like Jeremiah. Every Christian is called to be a light in this world and we shall reap if we faint not. If you're going to be persecuted someday, then make sure it's worth it. <laughs> make sure it's worth it. Keep serving, keep preaching. Don't let that pain go to waste. Don't give up now. The darkest days of persecution have always turned into a fire that spread the gospel even further. Always. It's happened that way. And it will continue to happen. Lord, we come to you today. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at the home church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.